Hi, listeners. You can now listen to this community podcast production ad-free on Apple Podcasts and access the podcast one week early and get exclusive bonus content. Just hit the subscribe button now on Apple Podcasts. Or if you want access to all of the above, plus video versions of the podcast, head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. Stop the Killing is proud to be supported by our sponsor, EZPA. EZPA is an integrations-capable communication software that connects older building systems, such as signage and public address systems, to modern software technologies, such as panic alarms and mass communication systems. Go to EZPA.com, that's E-Z-Y-P-A.com, to learn how to integrate your systems today. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. I'm Sarah Ferris, true crime podcaster. And I'm Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. And you're listening to Stop the Killing. My name is Adam Lankford. I'm a professor of criminology and criminal justice at the University of Alabama. So the good news is juveniles under the age of 18 who've committed these types of attacks and killed four or more victims are relatively rare, but that means we're also dealing with a small sample. The juveniles obviously can't get their firearms legally. And I think related to that, we could say that would show that we need to do a better job of whether it's requiring families to secure their firearms so that if they have a 16-year-old who's having a really bad month or a really bad year, they they can't access that firearm. Well, welcome back to part two of the Oxford School shooting case. Now, as you heard, that was Professor Adam Lankford. We're going to be hearing a lot more from him throughout this season as he actually is going to share with us the insight that he's gained from various studies, both in mass shootings globally and also in terrorism. But that soundbite seemed particularly relevant as we left off part one of last week's case, the Oxford School shooting, with the revelation that the parents of the shooter actually purchased that weapon for the minor. But before I go any further, if you've just stumbled into this episode and are wondering what we are talking about, please go back and listen to the previous episode. It's called Oxford School Shooting Part 1, and in it we cover the events as they unfold on November the 30th, 2021 at Oxford High School in Michigan. It left four students murdered and seven injured including a teacher. Now, as we continue with part two on this case, we want to talk to you about another reason that this case is so unusual, and that is these terrorism charges. Catherine, you're going to have to enlighten me on why these are so significant. 
So really, that's why I wanted to talk about this, because I think this is so fascinating. As an FBI agent, I worked on terrorism cases. And the idea of what terrorism is, is very much an intent to intimidate or coerce a civilian population. But we've never had a school shooter or somebody who shoots up a building charged with terrorism. So I think from now on, one of the things is that we're going to see that always considered if there's an opportunity. But I'll tell you just the legalese part of it in the United States. The federal government does not have a domestic terrorism charge. Other countries Mm -hmm. have those. The United States does not have a domestic terrorism charge. They have an international terrorist charge, meaning that if a foreign actor, a person from outside the United States comes into the United States and acts against Mm -hmm. the U.S. person's interest or business's interest, they can be charged. Okay, but he's from the United States. So how can he be charged with an act of terrorism? Michigan is one of uh, many states that passed local state terrorism laws, not surprisingly, after our September 11th, 2001 terrorist acts occurred in the United States. And states passed laws to allow for terrorist charges. For instance, these terrorists uh, trained in local states, some trained at an airline training facility in Florida, for instance, Mm. and some people participated. One of the reasons they weren't charged is there was no local terrorism charge you could really charge them with. So um, in the federal government, we just don't have a domestic terrorist charge. And there's constantly uh, a pressure that there be that. And I will say one of the reasons why that would be more important is that when I look at the history of active shooters and this type of terrorist targeted violence, there have been, say, 370 of those incidents in the last 21 years. And about three of them have had anything to do with anything international. Hmm. Almost no one is ever killed by international terrorists in the United States. So way far afield from where I started when you asked me about this, I'm sure an hour ago, because that's how it happens when you and I get on the line. This boy was charged with committing an act of terrorism, and that we haven't seen before. But, you know, adding to the facts of why he was charged with that, the prosecutor released publicly that a search of the teen's home and personal belongings verified that he had planned well ahead of time. And in fact, the night before, had recorded two messages on his phone talking about killing the students. And he had written out messages. He was fully intending to do this, even the night that his mom was encouraging him to not get caught. Unbelievable. So given all of that, Mm. if there were more charges filed, who might you think they'd be filed against? Well, it's got to be those parents, I'm guessing. But in all those cases that we've done, and even cases that I've followed, I haven't heard of parents ever being charged before. The parents here were charged with involuntary manslaughter for the death of the four students. Now, I I want to say that there's never been a parent charged with that before, but here would be the circumstances in the United States where a parent might be charged with involuntary manslaughter when a weapon they had, you know, killed a child. Circumstances where you might have an unsecured weapon in a box on the closet floor, an eight-year-old finds it, kills a six-year-old sibling. So what kind of sentence do those charges against the parents come with in Michigan? 20 years. There's four people dead. There's four charges of involuntary manslaughter against the mom, four charges of involuntary manslaughter against the dad. When the prosecutor announced the charges against the parents, remember I told you the kid had drawn a picture? This is the note that everybody saw. This is how the prosecutor described it. A drawing of the semi-automatic handgun was pointing at these words. The thoughts won't stop. Help me. So chilling. And to think that the parents, they not only knew that he had a gun when they saw that note in the counselor's office, had actually purchased the gun for him. It 
just mind-boggling. Well, let me tell you, another section of the note, there was a drawing of a bullet with the words above the bullet, blood everywhere. Between the drawing of the gun and the bullet, there's a person who appears to have been shot and is bleeding. And below that figure is a drawing of a laughing emoji. And down below it says, my life is useless. And then the world is dead. That's the note that the teacher saw. And now a word from our sponsor. EasyPA is an integration-capable communication software that connects older building systems, such as signage and public address systems, to modern software technologies, such as panic alarms and mass notification systems. Additional features include built-in automated bell schedules, remote access, text-to-natural voice announcements, and custom audio playlists. EZPA is one of the only full-service public address and communications companies that has in-depth knowledge on both the hardware and software aspects of communication and evacuation-based products. As a solution-based company, they offer design, supply, installation, and maintenance of all their products. And for use in schools, EZPA software provides multi-zone capabilities, pre-scheduled daily announcements and bells, and a remote alert button that can be accessed from anywhere in the school. Once a panic alarm is triggered, law enforcement is notified immediately. EZPA makes schools safer from any threat. Go to EZPA.com, that's E-Z-Y-P-A.com, to learn how to integrate your systems today. If you want to be a reseller or integrations partner, visit EZPA.com to learn more. That's E-Z-Y-P-A. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Catherine, it's probably quite a good time to do a little refresher on the timeline here as well for those people who have taken a break in between part one and part two of the episode. So let's go back. The week before the shooting happens, which happens on a Tuesday, The parents have gone and purchased uh, the gun as a gift for the killer. Then if we fast forward to Monday, a teacher spots some Googling ammunition in class and rightly so, takes action and the school actually calls the parents on Monday night. But at that stage, the parents pretty much ice the school. However, the mum, and we find this out later, does actually send a text message to the son that says something akin to, LOL, I'm not mad, just don't get caught. And she's referring there to don't get caught Googling ammunition in class. I mean, ugh, not. I have no words. So come Tuesday, the teacher does act pretty swiftly when they find that very disturbing and graphic drawing. They call the parents into the counsellor's office that same day. The kid comes to the office with his backpack on. Now, presumably, that same backpack contains the Christmas present gun. The parents are then urged to take him home. But according to the school, they're really insistent that they can't as they need to return to work. I mean, even after, and this is the bit that shocks me, even after having seen that very foreshadowing note. So layer on top of that, that they've seen the note, 
that bought the gun the previous week. Catherine, what was the conclusion of that meeting between the counsellor, the parents and the soon-to-be killer? The parents agreed to get him some counselling in the next 48 hours. He left. With, within an hour, they had dead kids at the school. I think the impact of these charges for the child and the parents, they're going to ripple not only across Michigan, but across the United States. Because if you think about a terrorism charge, what if no children had been killed at the school? Could you still charge terrorism? Well, he's still inciting terror, right? I mean, just pointing the gun, whether he fires it or not, is terrifying. He's inciting terror, Mm. right. In last week's episode, we talked to Frank DeAngelis. And again, if you haven't listened to part one, Frank is the former principal of Columbine High School. And as I mentioned last week, you can find the full interview with Frank on our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. There'll be a link in the show notes. Here is another snippet from that interview. They've charged the uh, young shooter at Oxford High School with terrorism, which speaks to the idea that the people who were not shot were still terrorized. Wow. And have you ever heard of that before? Being charged Uh, with terrorism? No, I think it's a different idea because if we took your situation at Columbine High School and went back in the mindset that we might have had back then, which was before 9-11, if there had been a state terrorism charge in Colorado, would you have thought it would be a fair thing to charge those two young men with if they had survived? I do. I think when you look at it, especially knowing the information that they were going to blow up the school. And that was an act of terrorism because they distinctly and brashly stated that we're going to do it. We're not going to do it like these ones before us. We're going to go in and we're going to blow up the school and it's going to collapse. And they even made mention of stealing a plane and flying it to New York. They had these grandiose ideas. So it was, you know, an act of uh, terrorism. And when that was the other thing, we were talking that certain kids were targeted. You know, they said kids of color, they were going after athletes. But when you place two propane tanks in a cafeteria and you're going to kill four or 500 people, you're not discriminating against anyone. You're going to kill as many people as possible in that setting. And so that's when I look at as an act of terrorism and people are affected. You know, hearing Frank speak there really gives some insight into the value that these new terrorism charges might provide to future mass shooting incidents. You look back at Frank's situation. Mm -hmm. He had two students who were running around in his school for a a pretty good amount of time, terrorizing the students. Now, those two students killed themselves, but we have a lot of uh, shooters who don't. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just that idea of these charges could be filed against anybody, even under the law. You can charge for an act, but you can also charge for an attempt. Mm -hmm. Maybe you have one person who's shot and injured survives. Mm -hmm. So you have an attempted murder charge and you have a charge for active terrorism. So maybe that attempted murder charge gets you six years in prison. Right. Your active terrorism gets you 20. Yes. No, I'm getting it. (laughs) I'm getting it. I like the scales of justice here. I'm I'm walking you through it. Let me ask you as a parent. You know how you talk to your kids about drugs? My mom used to always say, you only have to be there. You don't even have to use them, right? We're so careful about Mm. raising kids and telling them about drugs and alcohol. 
because we know the rules. Yeah. We know that when your child gets arrested with possession of drugs, even the possession charge can carry with them forever. And yeah. in this case, you have a kid who's being an angry teenager. I know you've probably never had that in your house. And daily, <laughs> daily. if you had a child who could be charged and face terrorism charges, mm. would that change the way that you raise your child? I think maybe there's a percentage gain. There's a percentage of people that it would make a difference to. But then I remember speaking to a psychologist about con artists in my other podcast and asking her, why don't the family see something mm -hmm. and stop it. And her answer was mm -hmm. along the lines that actually normally in those situations, the families are contributing to the problem in the first place. Their environment might be the cause of the behavior. So perhaps those margins of people that might actually have children that are in that bracket of danger, holding a weapon and doing something crazy with it, are those the parents that are actually going to be the ones that turn around and say, you shouldn't do this because we'll be charged with terrorism? I just don't know if they'd make that connection. Mm -hmm. You're saying they'd be the enablers. And I think from what I now know of America, there's a massive portion in the middle of people that have guns that are sensible and that that's where there might be a percentage gain, hopefully. Anyway, that's my thinking on it. But I think the extremes will always be there. I agree with you on that. I think that, look, we agreed on something. I, I think you're right. I think the extremes are always going to be there, always on the left or always on the right. But th there are going to be the extremes on this, I think, for sure. And there is a huge number of people in the middle, as I've always said, you know, who are responsible gun owners. And that percentage gain is what we might get. You know, after the shooting at Oxford, there were all kinds of prank calls and uh, postings where other kids said they were going to do school shootings. They even had students arrested, high school and middle school students arrested on terrorism charges because they were making threats about committing a shooting like Oxford at their school. But I just think about when will kids understand that a prank that talks about a school shooting mm -hmm. is bad. I mean, every parent right now should be saying, it's not a joke. And from a law enforcement point of view, for the majority that are pranks, there's probably that slim possibility. I mean, I hope it's a slim possibility of a copycat, right? Yes, you have to take them all seriously. A lot of times they are nothing more than a kid who doesn't want to take a history test. And so he is calling in a bomb threat to school or a fire. That is a very, very dark way to get out of a history test. But not unheard of. I guess I'm yeah. saying that's not unheard of. I can remember, I think it was in North Carolina. I get a phone call and it was a voicemail. And this guy calls up and he says, Principal DeAngelis, I just want to share with you that I just killed my stepfather and I am going on to carry out a school shooting and I am doing this in honor of the two and their legacy is going to live on forever. So I immediately called North Carolina. He didn't leave much information. And I said, I hope that this was a prank call. And he said, Frank, I don't know how to tell you this. We just found his stepfather dead. He picked up the kid at the school before he was able to shoot anyone there. But I mean, it's just that mentality of making reference in these two are glorified heroes and that scares you. Can you imagine getting that voicemail that Frank received? I mean, it's inconceivable. And 
you know, a really terrifying reminder that not all calls are pranks. I guess, Catherine, I'd like to know is, do we have any figures on how many calls are pranks and how many aren't? You know, I think that's the hard part. Everybody wants to see the stats, right? Everybody wants to know what the stats are, Mm -hmm. but the stats are incomplete because what you're trying to calculate is what didn't happen. And you cannot pull a stat on what doesn't happen. Well, let me ask you this, Catherine. Do you think that the new terrorism laws will be an effective deterrent at all? You're asking me to be Karnak. You're asking me to be a soothsayer. Um, <laughs> I think it will be, but I think it may take time for us to see it. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I think it's going to be a little while, and that may be a year or two before people appreciate the gravity of the risk that they're taking. I think also, too, the outcome for the Oxford case Mm. will make a difference. If a 15-year-old is charged as an adult and is convicted of a terrorism charge, which I don't know that that will happen, but there will be other people who are charged with this when they commit these kinds of crimes. I think that's what we see in the legal system is it takes time, but I think it will. I mean, this is really quite a watershed case. What do you think is going to be the biggest game changer when it's all done and dusted? Well, I think some people might say it's the terrorism charge against the 15-year-old. But to me, the most important thing here was the charges of involuntary manslaughter against the parents. Mm. Because no matter what happens to the young adult and his charges, his parents are now facing these involuntary manslaughter charges. I have to tell you, it might not be the missing piece in our puzzle of how to end shootings, Mm -hmm. but it's one important piece. You know, most states have some sort of law holding parents responsible for failing to secure a gun when it results in an incident involving their child. But I don't recall any cases where an involuntary manslaughter was charged for a child who did something like this. I mean, there are very rare cases where like a child finds a gun and kills a sibling, you know, because the gun is unsecured. Mm. And, you know, right now in the United States, research has found that more than half of all gun owners have at least one gun unsecured in the home. Oh, my goodness. That is a very high statistic. I think it is, right? Nearly a quarter of all gun owners report storing their guns in an unlocked location in their home. And you think about that while you send your little Jimmy or Johnny over to the neighbor's house to Mm -hmm. play. Every parent should ask, is there a gun in this house? Mm. Well, I'm actually going to pause you there for a minute, Catherine, and add in your niece Megan's insight. Because when we spoke to her here for part one of this episode, Not only does she live 30 minutes away from the Oxford school shooting, she actually did shed some light on how she makes this work in practice. I don't let my children play at homes where I know there are guns because I don't trust that other parents are going to keep my children safe when it comes to that. How do you go about asking somebody if they've got a gun in the house? Oh, I ask them. My girlfriend um, actually has a high school age student. So she has been a huge advocate for me in asking those questions. And like the first time they came over to play, do you guys have a gun in the house? And I thought, well, that's kind of odd. You know, our boys were in kindergarten when they met. And I said, no, we don't have a gun. Okay, then great, we can play. And she said, the answer is, if you do, great, we'll play at my house instead. Not a problem. You're a great person. Just because you own a gun doesn't make you a bad person. And then I had a babysitter who actually I thought was really insightful recently and she was real nervous it was her first time babysitting for us and she started dancing around I have a question to ask you I have a question to ask you and I said honey what is it and she said it's her gun in the house and I almost started crying and I said you should never be afraid to ask that question never be afraid to ask that question because that is your safety you have to be able to advocate for yourself and protect yourself 
And she said, I was so nervous to ask you. And I said, please don't ever be nervous to ask that question because that is just your safety. You know, it never fails to amaze me, Catherine, how much the US, the UK and New Zealand, we've got so much in common as countries. But then there are those moments like that where Megan's babysitter actually thinks to ask about a gun in the house. To me, it really highlights the the way the gun culture differs from perhaps the UK gun culture or lack thereof. Megan said she actually called the babysitter's parents and said, hey, you mm. know, good for you for teaching her to ask that question. Mm. Good for you. Mm. And me as an FBI agent, I never let my kid go over to a house unless I knew whether or not they had guns in the house and if they were secured. I asked it all the time. I didn't think twice about it. And that's you as a responsible parent not putting your child into a house with unsecured weapons. But now with those involuntary manslaughter charges against the parents of the Oxford school shooter, it should be making people think, secure the weapons that they do have in the house. Think twice because... Catherine, remind us of the potential sentences that these parents are actually facing. I think they're each facing 20 years for each of the four charges. And there are other circumstances that occurred. And so when they were charged, they thought the parents were going to uh, turn themselves in the afternoon. Three o'clock came and went and the parents weren't there. So law enforcement put out an all-out bulletin, look for this couple. Mm. And they frantically started looking for them. And they're in the Detroit area, which is just a short little car ride into another country, which is Canada. Right, of course. And so the couple didn't turn themselves in. They were unable to find them. The FBI was called in. Other law enforcement was called in. And they did this all-out, hard-pressed search. And a tip came in, see something, say something, that this car had been seen at this location in Detroit, which is about 15 minutes from the border. And they had taken several thousand dollars out of an ATM and they had secreted them themselves in a empty business district building overnight and skilled Detroit police officers and other law enforcement officers went in on an assault and, and arrested them and took them into custody. So they were essentially so, fleeing. They've taken money out. They're heading towards a border. Mm-hmm. Their attorneys, of course, would say they weren't and tried, to, mm-hmm. which is their attorney's job to try to get them sure. out. But right, exactly. I know a little, a little head tilt. And you're like, what? I can hear your head tilting. <laughs> what? If it quacks like a duck, probably is a duck. <laughs> exactly. Right. So they're in custody, right? These parents are learning the hard lesson. And I think everybody who has a gun, whether they're a parent or not, should be listening because this happened in November, right after Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. suddenly they were locked up. And the only time they saw each other, they were in leg irons and belly chains with their hands chained to their waistlines, shuffled into a courtroom briefly, sitting far away from each other. And that's what happened to the parents. And they are still there today. There's a half a million dollar bond set on them. So this happened in November. We're well into the next year. They're not getting out. No one's giving that bond up for them. So yeah. th- this is the risk to parents. You don't, for whatever reason, pay enough attention to what your kid is doing. You don't secure the guns in your house. You buy your kid a gun mm-hmm. uh, and other parents might say, well, I wouldn't be that stupid. I wouldn't buy my kid a gun. You know, a lot of times we do things because we think that they're good kids. Mm. You know, as a prosecutor, I spent many a day in court with the crying parents in the bench seats behind me and parents saying, my child would never do this. My child would never do this. While I'm looking at videotape and talking to witnesses about somebody who's been killed. 
Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Amy. And hi, hi, True Crime fans. We're the co-hosts of She Goes by Jane. Every week, we'll be covering the story of a missing or unidentified woman in the United States. Stories you may have heard before. And ones whose stories didn't make it into the news. We've been covering these stories for a while. First in Amy's book of poetry, Doe. And then in Vanessa's documentary, She. But now we want to share them with you here on She Goes by Jane. And each week we'll be joined by a special guest who will read a poem in honor of the women we talk about. Can we say who? We can say who. We'll be joined by actresses like Coco Jones and Gabrielle Ruiz. And musicians like Stephanie Quayle and Kelly Moneymaker. Along with authors like Louise Penny and Catherine McKenzie. So check out She Goes by Jane wherever you get your podcasts. Or check out Evergreen Podcasts and their true crime channel, Killer Podcasts. We can't wait to bring you these stories. Have you ever wondered about things that go bump in the night, or objects in the sky, or other things you just couldn't explain? Then join me, Jim Mallard, on my podcast, The Mallard Report. Each week, you'll find engaging conversations with guests who are authors, historians, and scholars who lend their expertise as we discuss current events and venture into the fringe and paranormal. The Mallard Report hits controversies head-on, yet remains conversational, and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any other major podcast platform. I think one of the other hard lessons here is that more than ever, you know, people really have to think about how they allow access to weapons in their house. Yeah. You know, my gosh, store your guns away because you're the ones who are going to be charged. If you buy a gun for somebody or if somebody gets one of your guns, that's an easy charge in terms mm-hmm. of knowing what happened. You had it, you didn't secure it, and it's gone and it's in somebody's hands and now they murdered somebody. Yeah. That's an easy charge. I wonder if people that listen to this podcast that that are gun owners are the kind of people that are already switched on and responsible enough to actually lock up their guns anyway. I kind of feel like they would be because they're interested in how to stop this problem in the first place. You know, I think responsible gun owners and guns locked up don't always go together. Think about the numbers that I just said. And a quarter of people say, yeah, we have an unsecured gun in the house. And they're thinking, oh, I need that gun unsecured for whatever reason. Right. You know, we I know about shootings where, you know, a middle school child took a gun out of the cereal cupboard. His parents didn't even know that the kid knew it was in the cereal cupboard. And the gun owners probably thought, oh, well, this is a great safe place for me to grab a gun. If I need one, it'll be loaded. I get the idea of mm. an empty gun isn't any help in an emergency. I get that idea. But you ask the kids, do they know where the unsecured guns are in homes? You know, yeah, they'd say yes. If they're anything like me, when I was a child, I mean, no guns in my house, but every December 1st, I stripped my parents' room bare looking for Christmas (laughs) presents. And Mm -hmm. that's what they do. You know, they're curious little monkeys. They'll find stuff. Exactly. That is so true. That's the spot on, right? Your kids will find it. And even if they're looking for uh, their birthday presents or Christmas presents, they're going to run across the guns. And, And a kid who wants to get a gun to commit a school shooting and knows that his friend Jimmy's dad has a couple of handguns. Mm. It's going to figure out a way to find them. Mm-hmm. When I was at the FBI Academy, you're taught so much about guns and the danger of guns. And of course, the biggest thing that you're taught is you have that responsibility, not just when you're working, but in your home. Mm. And, I, and I remember they told us a story about a street officer who was worked long hours. He came home and he fell asleep on the couch. When he came in, he put his handgun and his wallet and his badge on the table in front of him. Yeah. And he didn't mean to fall asleep, but he fell asleep on the couch. Mm. And then and the next morning, his toddlers got up <gasps> and one of the toddlers killed a sibling. No. With the handgun. And certainly that officer was well trained and 
always locked that gun up, but had been working so hard in his job. And he paid for it with the life of one of his kids. Wow. That is so tragic. So tragic. What do you think about these parents in Oxford being charged with involuntary manslaughter? That's never happened before. I'm just going off some of the video clips and things that I saw, you know, that they were posting with the gun. And was it a Christmas gift or? Christmas gift. Yeah, that is the wrong message. I don't know. I'm struggling. I'm struggling. And I think parents need to be parents and take responsibility. And I can remember this is nothing to the magnitude of a school shooting. But when parents would come up to me and they'd call up and moms would call up and say, Frank, can you tell my daughter she can't wear that to school? And I said, well, you're the parent. She may not like me. And I said, but you need to be a parent. And that's what scares me. They don't need you to be their best friend. You're going to love your kid no matter what. And I think as parents, if you can construe to them, if you get involved, you could actually end up saving their lives. I agree with you. I think one of the things that we try to stress on the podcast is, you know, what you are able to do, right? There's so much you can't do. But as a parent, there are so many things you can do. Agree. So normally, Catherine, I would be asking you right now what your moments of hope and bravery are. But this episode, I want to pile in first, because as tragic as the actual end result is, it seems really quite hopeful to me that we actually have come a long way since Columbine and even Sandy Hook. I mean, the fact that the corridors were cleared in a matter of seconds, even that the building itself had built-in protection with lockable doors. I mean, and don't get me wrong, this is not a win. Four student lives were lost, but I feel like it could have been a lot worse. So for me, there is this tiny glimmer of hope that we're moving in the right direction. I think you're right about how far we've come when you talk about clearing the halls in 10 seconds Mm. and children actually stopping the bleeding of another child who's been Mm -hmm. injured. So it's very hopeful. I I completely agree with you on that. But I came to the table with of course, not one, but two. I'm just going to give a quick one to the prosecutor, you know, who's going to take the heat for charging the parents, charging mm-hmm. the child with terrorism. That prosecutor in Oakland County really upped the game for potential charges for everybody that the terrorism charge could be there, that the involuntary manslaughter charge could be there to any parent or to anyone who chooses to do this. But the other thing that I wanted to say is, um, there was this language arts teacher that I read about. Her name was Gina Sambucci Black. She helped students get through this afterwards when they came back to school eight weeks into it. And she said, I want one word from all of you now that you're back in school to tell me uh, how you feel. And she said, many, many of them said relieved, relieved. Mm. So they weren't scared about being back in school. They were happy to be back in school. She's so smart. One of the things that I remember I also picked up is she was there. She slammed her door shut like we were talking about and locked it before she slammed her door shut. She knew there was a substitute teacher across the hall from her who might not have known. And she yelled to her, hit the door, stop her lock. And, you know, to make sure that those guys across the hall were also safe. So just a shout out to Gina Sambucci. Yes. Props to Gina. Well, make sure that you've subscribed to Stop the Killing because you won't want to miss next week's episode. We're going to be sharing even more of our interview with Frank DeAngelis. And again, if you want to hear the full version, 
head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. I'm sure our listeners will be hanging on to every word that comes out of his mouth because he has such incredible insight. Yes. Um, he's been through so much. He's talked to so many people. I mean, it's astonishing to hear him tell his story of Columbine, mm. but you know, which you'll hear, but it's amazing to hear how he's, he's survived and thrived through it mm. and how he's interacted with other people through the next 20 years. Yeah, you definitely won't want to miss next week's episode. But in the interim, what cherry little pearl of wisdom do you want to leave us with today, Catherine? Oh, I hate to sound like a broken record here, but please lock your guns up. Thanks for listening. And if you want to know more, Catherine's book, Stop the Killing, is out now. For more details, go to katherineschweit.com. Please consider also supporting our independently made podcast. It's simple to do. Go to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. And for as little as the price of a latte a month, you can be part of the solution to stop the killing. Patreon rewards range from official do-gooder status to ad-free episodes, autographed books, and opportunities to connect with us directly for your business, school, church, or even just a book club chat. But just knowing that you are part of a movement that has the power to make your community safer, well, that's got to taste better than a skinny cappuccino any day. So please head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing now and polish off your do-gooder halo and make sure to include your name so we can give you a shout out. This podcast is a community podcast production. That's con with an N. If you want more content, then head over to Community Podcast at Instagram, where you'll find trailers on more binge-worthy true crime, like the award-winning podcast Conning the Con. And check out our show notes for all the links mentioned. Finally, if you want one takeaway action that you can do right now that can help make our community safer, Please share, rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. Everybody needs to know that they hold the keys to see something and say something. Together, we can stop the killing. It's one of those things you hope never happens, but you better train for it. Because it will happen. And it will happen in places you wouldn't expect. Be ready for it. If you've enjoyed Stop the Killing, check out more podcasts from Community Podcast Productions, like this one. Something is creeping in, don't follow it down. Let me introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. The type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now, you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy. And you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son, who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims... Subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then... 
there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule. History so interesting, it's criminal. <laughs>